Number three, re objections of respondents. The other related objections of respondents' counsels must be rejected in the face of the court's declaration that the trial was a mock trial and that the predetermined judgment of acquittal was unlawful and void ab initio. Letter A. It follows that there is no need to resort to a direct action to annul the judgment instead of the present action which it which was timely filed initially to declare a mistrial and to enjoin the rendition of the void judgment. And after the hasty rendition of such judgment for the declaration of its nullity following the presentation of competent proof heard by the Commission and the Court's findings therefrom, that the proceedings were from the beginning vitiated not only by lack of due process but also by the collusion between the public respondents court and Panod Bayan for the rendition of a predetermined verdict of acquitting all the 26 respondents accused. Letter B, it is manifest that this does not involve a case of mere irregularities in the conduct of the proceedings of er or errors of judgment, which do not affect the integrity or validity of the judgment or verdict. Letter C, the contention of one of defense counsel that the state and the sovereign people are not entitled to due process is clearly erroneous and contrary to the basic principles and jurisprudence cited herein above. Letter D, the submittal of respondents accused that they had no, not exerted the pressure applied by the authoritarian president on public respondents and that no evidence was suppressed against them must be held to be untenable in the wake of the evil plot now exposed for their preordained wholesale exoneration. Letter E. Respondents' invocation of the writer's opinion in Luzon Brokerage Corporation Incorporated versus Maritime Building Corporation Incorporated is inappropriate. The writer therein held that a party should be entitled to only one Supreme Court and may not speculate on vital changes in the court's membership for review of his lost case once more. Since public policy and sound practice demand that litigation be put to an end and no second pro forma motion for reconsideration reiterating the same arguments should be kept pending so long for over six years and one month since the denial of the first motion for reconsideration. The opinion cannot be properly invoked <coughs> because here petitioner's second motion for reconsideration was filed promptly on March 20, 1986 following the denial under date of February 4th of the first motion for reconsideration and the same was admitted per the court's resolution of April 3, 1986 and is now being resolved within five months of its filing after the commission had received the evidence of the parties who were heard by the court only last August 26. The second motion for reconsideration is based on an entirely new material ground which was not known at the time of the denial of the petition and filing of the first motion for reconsideration. The secret Malacanang conference on January 10, 1985 which came to light only 15 months later in March 1986 and showed beyond per adventure as proved in the commission hearings the merits of the petition and that the authoritarian president had dictated and predetermined the final outcome of acquittal. Hence, the 10 members of the court without any new appoint appointees unanimously voted to admit the second motion for reconsideration. Number 4. With the declaration of nullity of the proceedings, the cases must now be tried before the in an impartial court with an unbiased prosecutor, there has been the long dark night of authoritarian regime since the fake ambush in September 1972 of then Defense Secretary Juan Ponce Enrile, as now admitted by Enrile 
himself was staged to trigger the imposition of martial law and authoritarian one-man rule with the podlocking of Congress and the abolition of the office of the Vice President. As recently retired, Senior Justice Vicente Abad Santos recalled in his valedictory to the new members of the bar last May, in the past few years, the judiciary was under heavy attack by an extremely powerful, powerful executive. During this state of judicial siege, lawyers in and outside the judiciary perceptively surrendered to the animus of technicality. In the end, morality was overwhelmed by technicality so that the latter emerged ugly and naked in its true manifestation. Now that the light is emerging, the Supreme Court faces the task of restoring public faith and confidence in the courts. The Supreme Court enjoys neither the power of the sword nor of the purse. Its strength lies mainly in public confidence based on the truth and moral force of its judgments. This has been built on its cherished traditions of objectivity and impartiality, integrity and fairness, and unswerving loyalty to the Constitution and the rule of law, which compels acceptance as well by the leadership as by the people. The lower courts draw their bearings from the Supreme Court with this court's judgment today declaring the nullity of the question judgment or acquittal and directing a new trial, there must be a rejection of the temptation of becoming instruments of injustice as vigorously as we rejected becoming its victims. The end of one form of injustice should not become simply the beginning of another. This simply means that the respondents accused must now face trial for the crimes charged against them before an impartial court with an unbiased prosecutor with all due process. What the past regime had denied, the people and the aggrieved parties in the sham trial must now be assured as much to the accused as to the aggrieved parties, the people will assuredly have a way of knowing when justice has prevailed as well as when it has failed. The notion nurtured under the past regime that those appointed to public office owe the, their primary allegiance to the appointing authority and are accountable to him alone and not to the people or the constitution must be discarded. The following <clears throat> the function of the appointing authority with the mandate of the people under our system of government is to fill the public post. While the appointee may acknowledge with gratitude the opportunity thus given of rendering public service, the appointing authority becomes functus official and the primary loyalty of the appointed must be rendered to the constitution and the sovereign people in accordance with his sacred oath of office to paraphrase the late chief justice earl warren of the united states supreme court the justices and judges must ever realize that they have no constituency serve no majority nor minority but serve only the public interest as they see it in accordance with their oath of office guided only the constitution and their own conscience and honor number five note of commendation the court expresses its appreciation with thanks for the invaluable services rendered by the commission composed of retired supreme court justice conrado m vasquez chairman and retired court of appeals justice milagros herman and eduardo Cag Cagiwa. 
as members in the pure spirit of public service they rendered selflessly and without remuneration thorough competent and dedicated service in discharging their task of hearing and receiving the evidence evaluating the same and submitting their report and findings to the court within the scheduled period and greatly easing the court's burden accordingly Petitioner's second motion for reconsideration is granted. The resolutions of November 28, 1985, dismissing the petition, and of February 4, 1986, denying petitioner's motion for reconsideration are hereby set aside, and in lieu thereof, judgment is hereby rendered nullifying the proceedings in Respondents and Digan Bayan and its judgment of acquittal in criminal cases number. 10010 and 10011 entitled People of the Philippines versus General Luther Custodia et al. and ordering a retrial of the said cases which should be conducted with deliberate dispatch and with careful regard for the requirements of due process so that the truth may be finally known and justice done to an this resolution is immediately executory. So ordered. Yap Cruz Barras and Feliciano JJ Concur, Feria, Fernan, and Nervasa JJ took no part. <clears throat> there are a lot of separate opinions, concurring opinions, but I won't be reading them anymore. So we're just gonna end it there under ruling. That's it. Give instructions as to how the case should be handled, he saw to it that he would know if his instruction will be complied with. Number 9. Partiality of Sandigan Bayan betrayed by its decision. That President Marcos had wanted all of the 26 accused to be acquitted may not be denied. The disposal of the case in said manner is an integral part of the scenario which was cleverly designed to accomplish two principal objectives seemingly conflicting in themselves but favorable both to then administration and to the accused to wit number one the satisfaction of the public clamor for the suspected killers of senator aquino to be charged in court and number two the foreclosure of any possibility that they may again be prosecuted for the same offense in the event that president marcos should no longer be in power in rendering its decision that Sandigan Bayan overdid itself in favoring the presidential directive, its bias and partiality in favor of the accused was glaringly obvious. The evidence presented by the prosecution was totally ignored and disregarded. It was deemed not sufficient to simply acquit all of the 26 accused on the standard ground that their guilt had not been proven beyond reasonable doubt, as was the most logical and appropriate way of justifying the acquittal in the case there not be a total absence of evidence that could show guilt on the part of the accused. The decision had to pronounce them innocent of the crime charge on the two informations and accordingly, they incur neither criminal nor civil liability. It is a rare phenomenon to see a person accused of a crime to be favored with such total absolution. Doubt on the soundness of the decision entertained by one of the two justices who concurred with the majority decision penned by Justice Pamaran was revealed by Justice Herrera who testified that in October 1985, when the decision was being prepared, Justice Augusto Amores told him that he was of the view that some of the accused should be convicted 
he having found difficulty in acquitting all of them. However, he confided to Justice Herrera that Justice Pamaran made it clear to him and Justice Vera Cruz that Malacanang had instructions to acquit all of the 26 accused. Justice Amores also told Justice Herrera that he would confirm this statement which was mentioned in Justice Herrera's comment to the second motion for reconsideration if asked about it. This testimony, Justice Herrera, remained unrebutted, emphasis supplied. The record shows suffocatingly that from the beginning to end, the then-president used, or more precisely, misused the overwhelming resources of the government and his authoritarian powers to corrupt and make a mockery of the judicial process in the Aquino-Galman murder cases, as graphically depicted to the, in the report, supra, and borne out by the happenings, res ipsa locitur. Since the resolution prepared by his coordinator, Manuel Lazaro, his presidential assistant on legal affairs for the Tanod Bayan's dismissal of the case against all accused was unpalatable, it would summon the demonstrations back to the streets and at any rate was not acceptable to the Herrera prosecution panel. The unholy scenario for acquittal of all 26 accused after the rigid trial as ordered at the Malacanang Conference would accomplish the two principal objectives of satisfaction of the public clamor for the suspected killers to be charged in court and of giving them, through their acquittal, the legal shield of double jeopardy. Indeed, the secret Malacanang Conference at which the authoritarian president called together the presiding justice of the Sandigan Bayan and Tanod Bayan Fernandez and the entire prosecution panel held by Deputy Tanod Bayan Herrera and told them how to handle and rig Moro Moro, the trial and the close monitoring of the entire proceedings to assure the predetermined ignominious final outcome are without parallel and precedent in our annals and jurisprudence. To borrow a phrase, from Ninoy's April 14, 1975, letter withdrawing his petition for habeas corpus. This is the evil of one-man rule at its very worst. Our penal code penalizes any executive officer who shall address any order or suggestion to any judicial authority with respect to any case or business coming within the exclusive jurisdiction of the courts of justice. His obsession for the boy's acquittal led to several firsts which would otherwise be inexplicable. Number one, he turned his back on and repudiated the findings of the very fact-finding board that he himself appointed to investigate the national tragedy and national shame of the treacherous and vicious assassination of Ninoy Aquino and to ventilate the truth through free, independent, and dispassionate investigation by prestigious and free investigators. Number two, he cordially received the chairman with her minority report one day ahead of the four majority members and instantly referred it to respondents for final resolution through the legal system as if it were the majority and controlling report and rebuked the four majority members when they presented to him the next day the report calling for the indictment of all 26 respondents headed by general 
Ver and Olivas instead of the lesser seven under the chairman's minority report. Number three. From the day after the Aquino assassination to the dictated verdict of acquittal, he totally disregarded the board's majority and minority findings of fact and publicly insisted that the military's fall guy, Rolando Galman, was the killer of Ninoy Aquino and sought futilely to justify the soldiers' incompetence and gross negligence to provide any security for Ninoy in contrast to their alacrity in gunning down the alleged assassin, Galman, and searing his lips. Number four, the Sandigan Bayan's decision that is by Pamaran J. Ponente in effect convicted Rolando Galman as Ninoy's assassin notwithstanding that he was not on trial but the victim, according to the very information filed and evidence to the contrary submitted by the Herrera Prosecution Panel. And number five, Justice Pamaran's Ponencia, despite reservations expressed by Justice Amores, who wanted to convict some of the accused, granted all 26 accused total absolution and pronounced them innocent of the crimes charged in the two informations and accordingly, they incur neither criminal civil liability notwithstanding the evidence on the basis of which the fact-finding board had unanimously declared the soldier's version of galman being aquino's killer a perjured story given deliberately and in conspiracy with one another the fact of the secret Malacanang conference of January 10, 1985, at which the authoritarian president discussed with the presiding justice of the Sandigan Bayan and the entire prosecution panel the matter of the imminent filing of the criminal charges against all the 26 accused as admitted by respondent Justice Fernandez to have been confirmed by him to the then-president coordinator Manuel Lazaro on the preceding day is not denied. It is without precedent. This was illegal under our penal law supra this illegality vitiated from the very beginning all proceedings in the Sandigan Bayan Court headed by the very presiding justice who attended. As the commission noted, the very acts of being summoned to Malacanang and their ready acquiescence thereto under the circumstances then obtaining are in themselves pressure, dramatized, and exemplified. Verily, it can be said that any avowal of independent action or resistance to presidential pressure became illusory from the very moment they stepped inside Malacanang Palace on January 10, 1985. No court whose presiding justice has received orders or suggestions from the very president who by an mandatory decree disclosed only at the hearing of oral arguments on November 8, 1984 on petition challenging the referral of the Aquino Galman murder cases of the Tanod Bayan and Sandigan Bayan instead of uh, to a court martial. The referral of the Aquino Galman murder cases to the Tanod Bayan and Sandigan Bayan instead of to a court martial as mandatory required by the known PD 1850 at the time providing for exclusive jurisdiction of court martials over criminal offenses committed by military man. Letter A made it possible to refer the cases to the Sandigan Bayan can be impartial court, which the very essence of due process of law. As the writer then wrote, jurisdiction over cases should be determined by law and not by preselection of the executive, which could be too easily transformed into a means of predetermining the outcome of individual cases. Letter B, this criminal collusion as to the handling and treatment of the cases by public respondents at the secret Malacanang conference and revealed only after 15 months by Justice Manuel Herrera completely disqualified 
respondents in Digan Bayan, and voided ab initio its verdict. This renders moot and irrelevant for now the extensive arguments of respondent accused, particularly Generals Burr and Olivas and those categorized as accessory that there has been no evidence or witness suppressed against them. That he erroneous conclusions that the erroneous conclusions of Olivas as police investigator do not make him an accessory of the crimes he investigated and the appraisal and evaluation of the testimonies of the witnesses presented and suppressed. There will be time and opportunity to present all these arguments and considerations at the remand and retrial of the case here in order before a neutral and impartial court. The Supreme Court cannot permit such a sham trial and verdict and travesty of justice to stand unrectified. The courts of the land under its ages are courts of law and justice and equity. They would have no reason to exist if they were allowed to be used as a mere tool of injustice, deception, and duplicity to subvert and suppress the truth instead of repositories of judicial power whose judges are sworn and committed to render impartial justice to all alike who seek the enforcement of or protection of a right or the prevention of redress of a wrong without fear or favor and who uh, and removed from the pressures of political politics and prejudice. More so, in the case at bar, where the people and the world are entitled to know the truth and the integrity of our judicial system is at stake. In life, as an accused before the military tribunal, Ninoy had pleaded in vain that as a civilian, he was entitled to due process of law and trial in the regular civil courts before an impartial court with an unbiased prosecutor. In death, Ninoy, as the victim of the treacherous and vicious assassination, and the relatives and sovereign people as the aggrieved parties plead once more for due process of law and a retrial before an impartial court with an unbiased prosecutor. The court is constrained to declare the sham trial a mock trial, the non-trial of the century, and that the predetermined judgment of acquittal was unlawful and void ab initio. Number one, no double jeopardy. It is subtle doctrine that double jeopardy cannot be invoked against this court's set setting aside of the trial court's judgment of dismissal or acquittal where the prosecution which represents the sovereign people in criminal cases is denied due process. As the court stressed in the 1985 cases of People v. Bukar, where the prosecution is <laughs> where the prosecution is deprived of a fair opportunity to prosecute and prove its case, its right to due process is thereby violated. The cardinal precept is that where there is a violation of basic constitutional rights, courts are ousted of their jurisdiction. Thus, the violation of the state's right to due process raises a serious jurisdictional issues, which cannot be glossed over or disregarded at will. Where the denial of the fundamental right of due process is apparent, a decision rendered in disregard of that right is void for lack of jurisdiction. Any judgment or decision rendered notwithstanding such violation may be regarded as a lawless thing, which can be treated as an outlaw and slain at sight or ignored wherever it exhibits its head. Respondents judge dismissal order dated July 7, 1967 being null and void for lack of jurisdiction. The same does not constitute a proper basis for a claim of double jeopardy. Legal jeopardy attaches only letter A upon a valid indictment, letter B before a com competent court, letter C after arraignment, letter D a valid plea having been entered, letter E 
the case was dismissed or otherwise terminated without the express consent of the accused. The lower court was not competent as it was ousted of its jurisdiction when it violated the right of the prosecution to due process. In effect, the first jeopardy was never terminated and the remand of the criminal case for further hearing and or trial before the lower courts amounts merely to a continuation of the first jeopardy and does not expose the accused to a second jeopardy. More so, does the rule against the invoking of double jeopardy hold in the cases at bar where, as we have held, the sham trial was but a mock trial, where the authoritarian president ordered respondents Sandigan Bayan and Tanud Bayan to rig the trial and closely monitored the entire proceedings to assure the predetermined final outcome of acquittal and total absolution as the innocent of an uh, the respondents accused, notwithstanding the laudable efforts of Justice Herrera, which saw him near the end deactivating himself from the case as it was his belief that its eventual resolution was already a foregone conclusion. They could not cope with the misuse and abuse of the overwhelming powers of the authoritarian president to weaken the case of the prosecution to suppress its evidence, harass, intimidate, and threaten its witnesses, secure their recantation, or prevent them from testifying. Fully aware of the prosecution's difficulties in locating witnesses and overcoming their natural fear and reluctance to appear and testify, respondents and began by maintain a dizzying tempo of the proceedings and announce its intention to terminate the proceedings in about six months' time or less than a year pursuant to the scripto scripted scenario. The prosecution complained of the presiding judge justice seemingly hostile attitude towards it. And they're being the subject of warnings, reprimand, and contempt proceedings as compared to the nail situation for the defense. Herrera likewise complained of being casualed into producing witnesses and pressed on making assurances that if given a certain period, they will be able to produce their witnesses. Herrera pleaded for a reasonable period of preparation of its evidence and cited other pending cases before respondent court that were pending trial for a much longer time where the dizzying tempo and fast pace were not maintained by the court. Manifestly, the prosecution and the sovereign people were denied due process of law, with a partial court and bias tanod bayan, under the constant and pervasive monitoring and pressure exerted by the authoritarian president to assure the carrying out of his instructions. A dictated, coerced, and scripted verdict of acquittal such as that in the case at bar is a void judgment. In legal contemplation, it is no judgment at all. It neither binds nor bars anyone. Such a judgment, judgment is a lawless thing, which can be treated as an outlaw. It is a terrible and unspeakable affront to the society and to the people. To paraphrase Brandes, if the authoritarian head of the government becomes the lawbreaker, he breeds contempt for the law. He invites every man to become a law unto himself, he invites anarchy. Respondents accuse contention that a Sindigan Bayan judgment of acquittal ends the case which cannot be appealed or reopened without being put in double jeopardy was forcefully disposed of by the court and people versus court of appeals, which is fully applicable here as follows. That is the general rule and presupposes a voluntary judgment. As earlier pointed out, however, respondent court's resolution of acquittal was a void judgment. For having been issued without jurisdiction, no double jeopardy attaches. Therefore, a void judgment is in legal effect. No judgment at all by it. No rights are divested. Through it, no rights can be attained. 
being worthless all proceedings founded upon it are equally worthless it neither binds nor bars anyone all acts performed under it and all claims flowing out of it are void private respondent invoke justice for the innocent for justice to prevail the scales must balance it is not to be dispensed for the accused alone the interest of the society which they have wrong must also be equally considered a judgment of conviction is not necessarily a denial of justice a verdict of acquittal neither necessarily spells a triumph of justice to the party wrong to the society offended it could also mean injustice this is where the courts play a vital role they render justice where justice is due number two motion to disqualify inhibit should have been resolved ahead the private prosecutors had filed a motion to disqualify and for inhibition of respondents justices of the sandigan bayan on grounds of manifest bias and partiality to the defense and arising from the attorney now tanod bayan raul m gonzalez charged that justice vera cruz had been passing coaching notes to defense counsel Justice Herrera had joined the motion and pleaded at the hearing of June 25, 1985, and in the prosecution memorandum that respondents and Digan Bayan should not decide the case on the merits without first making a final ruling on the motion for inhibition. Herrera quoted the exchange between him and the presiding justice to show the latter's following the script of the Malacanang. PJ Pamaran, well, the court believes that we should proceed with the trial and then deal later on with that. After all, the most important thing here is, shall we say the decision of the case? Justice Herrera, I think more important than the decision of the case, Your Honor, is the capacity of the justices to sit in judgment. This is more important than anything else. Emphasis supplied by Herrera. But the Sandigan Bayan brushed aside Herrera's pleas and then wrongly blame him in the decision for supposedly not having joined the petition for inhibition contrary to the facts above stated as follows. The motion for inhibition above referred to related exclusively for the contempt proceeding. Two, it must be remembered that the prosecution neither joined that petition nor did it at any time manifest a desire to file a similar motion prior to the submission of these cases for decision to do it now is not a loan out of season but is also a confession of official insouciance the action for prohibition was filed in the court to seek the disqualification of respondents justice pursuant to the procedure recognized by the court in the 1969 cases of paredes versus gopenko since an adverse ruling by respondent court might result in a verdict of acquittal leaving the offended party without any remedy nor appeal in view of the double jeopardy rule not to mention the overriding and transcendental public interest that would make out a case of denial of due process to the people if the alleged failure on the part of the tanod bayan to present the complete evidence for the prosecution is substantial in the case, petitioners' motion for reconsideration of the abrupt dismissal of their petition and lifting of the temporary restraining order and joining the Sindigan Bayan from rendering its decision had been taken cognizance of the of by the court, which had required the respondents, including the Sandigan Bayan's comments. Although no restraining order was issued anew, respondent Sandigan Bayan should not have participately issued its decision of total absolution of all the accused pending the final action of this court this is the teaching of valdez versus achilizan wherein the court in setting aside the hasty convictions ruled that prudence dictated that respondent judge refrain from deciding the cases 
or at the very least to hold in abeyance the promulgation of his decision pending action by this court. But prudence gave away to imprudence. The respondent judge acted precipitately by deciding the case hastily without awaiting this court's decision. All of the acts of the respondent judge manifest grave abuse of discretion on his part amounting to the lack of jurisdiction which substantively prejudiced the petitioner. What is more intriguing is the fact that although a raffle might have been actually conducted which resulted in the assignment of the case to the first division of the Sandigan Bayan, the commission did not receive any evidence on how or why it was handled personally by Justice Pamaran who wrote the decision thereof and not by any of the other two members of his division. Number seven, the custody of the accused, their confinement in a military camp instead in, of in a civilian jail. When the question of custody came up after the case was filed in the Sindigan Bayan, the latter issued an order directing the confinement of the accused in the city jail of Manila. The order was not carried out in view of the information given by the warden of the city jail that there was no space for the 26 accused in said jail. The same information was given when the custody was proposed to be given to the National Penitentiary in Muntinglupa and to the National Bureau of Investigation at the point the defense came up with Presidential Decree Number 1950A, which authorizes the custody of the accused military personnel with their respective commanding officers. Justice Herrera claimed that the said Presidential Decree was not known even to the Danod Bayan, Justice Fernandez, who had to call up the then Minister of Justice Estelito Mendoza to request for a copy of the same and was given such copy only after some time. Number eight, the monitoring of proceedings and developments for Malacanang and by Malacanang personnel. There is an uncontradicted evidence of the progress of the proceedings in the Sandigan Bayan as well as the development of the case outside the court has been had been monitored by Malacanang presumably for it to know what was happening and to take remedial measures as may, ne may, may be necessary. Justice Pamaran had candidly admitted the television cameras boldly carried the label of Office of the President of the Philippines were installed in the courtroom for that purpose. There was a room in the Sandigan by a mischievously caned war room wherein military and Malacanang personnel stayed to keep track of the proceedings. The close monitoring by Malacanang showed it its results on several locations specified in the report. Malacanang was immediately aware of the Japanese witness Wakamiya's presence in Justice Herrera's office on August 21, 1985 and forestalled the giving of his testimony by having the Japanese embassy advise Wakamiya to leave the country at once. Likewise, Colonel Balbino Diego, Malacanang intelligence chief, suddenly appeared at the National Bureau of Investigation office when the crying lady, Rebecca Quijano, was brought there by NBI agents for interrogation and therein sought to obtain custody of her. It is likewise an undisputed fact, the commission noted, that several military personnel pretended to be deputy sheriffs of the Sandigan Bayan and attended the trials thereof in the prescribed deputy sheriff's uniform. The commission's inescapable finding, it is abundantly clear that President Marcos did not only
the chairman wrote in her minority report somewhat prophetically that the epilogue to our work lies in what will transpire in accordance with the action that the office of the president may thereafter direct to be taken the four-member majority report also prophetically wrote in the epilogue after warning the forces who adhere to an alien an intolerable political ideology against unscrupulously using the report to discredit our traditionally revered institutions that the tragedy opened our eyes and for the first time confirmed our worst fears of what unchecked evil would be capable of doing. They wrote, The task of the board was clear and unequivocal. This task was not only to determine the facts and circumstances surrounding the death of the late former senator. Of greater significance is the awesome responsibility of the board to uphold righteousness over evil, justice over injustice, rationality over irrationality, humaneness over inhumanity. The task was indeed a painful test, the inevitable result of which will restore our country's honor honored place among the sovereign nations of the free world where peace law and order freedom and justice are a way of life more than any other event in contemporary philippine history the killing of the late former senator Aquino has brought into sharper focus the ills pervading philippine society it was the concretization of the horror that has been haunting this country for decades, routinely manifested with a breakdown of peace and order, economic instability, subversion, graft and corruption, and an increasing number of abusive elements in what are otherwise noble institutions in our country, the military and law enforcement agencies. We are however convinced that by and large the great majority of the officers and men of these institutions have remained decent and honorable dedicated to their noble mission in the service of our country and people. The tragedy opened our eyes and for the first time confirmed our worst fears of what unchecked evil would be capable of doing. As former Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Eban observes, nobody who has great authority can be trusted not to go beyond its proper limits. Social apathy, passivity, and indifference and neglect have spawned in secret a dark force that is bent on destroying the values held sacred by freedom-loving people to assert our proper place in the civilized world. It is imperative that public officials should regard public service as a reflection of human ideals in which the highest sense of moral values and integrity are strictly required. A tragedy like that which happened on Og. August 21, 1983, the crisis that followed would have normally caused the resignation of the chief of the armed forces in a country where public office is viewed with highest esteem and respect and where the moral responsibilities of public officials transcend all other considerations. It is equally the fact that the then president, through all his recorded public acts and statements from the beginning, disdained and rejected his own board's above findings and insisted on the military version of Galman being Ninoy's assassin. In upholding this view, 
that there is no involvement of anyone in his government in the assassination, he told David Briscoe, then AP Manila bureau chief in a radio TV interview on September 9, 1983, that I am convinced that if any member of my government were involved, I would have known somehow. Even at a fairly low level, I would have known. I know how they think. I know what they're thinking of, he told CBS in another interview in May 1984 as his fact-finding board was holding its hearings the following. CBS But indeed, there has been recent evidence that seems to contradict earlier reports, namely, the recent evidence seems to indicate that some of the guards may have been responsible for shooting Ninoy. Marcos Well, you are, of course, wrong. What you have been reading are the newspapers, and newspaper reports have been biased. The evidence still proves that Galman was the killer. The evidence also shows that there were intelligence reports connecting the Communist Party to the killing. In his reply of October 25, 1984, the General Verse letter of the same date, going on leave of absence upon release of the board's majority report implicating him, he wrote that, We are even more aware, General, that the circumstances under which the board has chosen to implicate you in its findings are fraught with doubt and great contradictions of opinion and testimony, and you are deeply disturbed that on the basis of so-called evidence, you have been so accused by some members of the board, and extended my very best wishes to you and your family for a speedy resolution of your case. Even as he announced that he would return the general to his position as AFP chief, if he is acquitted by the Sindigan Bayan in an interview on June 4, 1985, with the Gamma Photo Agency, as Respondent Court was hearing the cases, he was quoted as saying that, as will probably be shown, those witnesses against the accused are perjured witnesses. It was against in this setting that on November 11, 1985, petitioners after Nina Galman and Reynaldo Galman, mother and son, respectively on the of the late Rolando Galman and 29 other petitioners composed of three former justices of this court, five incumbent and former university presidents, a former AFP chief of staff, outstanding members of the Philippine Bar, and solid citizens of the community filed the present action alleging that respondents Tanod Bayan and Sandigan Bayan committed serious irregularities constituting mistrial and resulting in miscarriage of justice and gross, gross violation of the constitutional rights of the petitioner and the sovereign people of the Philippines to due process of law. They asserted that the Tanod Bayan did not represent the interest of the people when he failed to exert genuine and earnest efforts to present vital and important testimonial and documentary evidence for the prosecution and that the Sandigan Bayan justices were biased, prejudiced, and partial in favor of the accused and that their acts clouded with the gravest doubts the sincerity of government to find out the truth about the Aquino assassination. Petitioners prayed for the immediate issuance of a temporary restraining order restraining the respondents and Digan from rendering a decision on the merits in the pending criminal cases which it had scheduled on November 20, 1985 and that judgment be rendered declaring a mistrial and nullifying the proceedings before the Sandigan Bayan and ordering a retrial before an impartial tribunal by an unbiased prosecutor. At the hearing on November 18, 1985, of petitioner's prayer for issuance of a temporary restraining order in joining respondent court from rendering a decision in the two criminal cases before it, the court resolved by 9 to 2 votes to issue the restraining order prayed for. The court also granted petitioners a five-day period to file 
a reply to respondent separate comments respondent an advised a 3 day period to submit a copy of his 84 page memorandum for the prosecution as filed in the sindigan bayan the signature page of which alone had been submitted to the court as annex 5 of his comment but 10 days later on november 28 1985 the court by the same 9 to 2 vote ratio in reverse resolved to dismiss the petition and to lift the temporary restraining order issued 10 days earlier enjoining the Sandigan Bayan from rendering its decision. The same court majority denied petitioner's motion for a new 5-day period counted from receipt of respondent Anod Bayan's memorandum for the prosecution which apparently was not served of them and which they allege was very material to the question of his partiality, bias, and prejudice within which to file a consolidated reply thereto and to respondent's separate comments by an 8-3 vote with Justice Gutierrez joining the dissenters. On November 29, 1985, petitioners filed a motion for reconsideration, alleging that the dismissal did not indicate the legal ground for such action and urging that the case be set for a full hearing on the merits because if the charge of partiality and bias against the respondents and suppression of vital evidence by the prosecution are proven, the petitioners would be entitled to the reliefs demanded. The people are entitled to due process, which requires an impartial tribunal and an unbiased prosecutor. If the state is deprived of a fair opportunity to prosecute and convict because certain material evidence is suppressed by the prosecution and the tribunal is not impartial, then the entire proceedings would be null and void. Petitioners prayed that the Sandigan Bayan be restrained from promulgating their decisions as scheduled anew on December 2, 1985. On December 5, 1985, the court required the respondents to comment on the motion for reconsideration but issued no restraining order. Thus, on December 2, 1985, as scheduled, respondents Sandigan Bayan issued its decision acquitting all the accused of the crime charge declaring them innocent and totally absolving them of any civil liability. All this marked another unusual first in that respondents and Deegan Bayan in effect convicted the very victim, Rolando Galman, who was not on trial as the assassin of Ninoy, contrary to the very information and evidence submitted by the prosecution. In opposition, respondents submitted that with the Sandigan Bayan's verdict of acquittal, the instant case had become moot and academic. On February 4, 1986, the same court majority denied petitioner's motion for reconsideration for lack of merit, with the writer and Justice Abad Santos maintaining our dissent. On March 20, 1986, Petitioners filed their motion to admit their second motion for reconsideration attached therewith. The thrust of the second motion for reconsideration was the startling and theretofore unknown revelations of Deputy Tanod Bayan Manuel Herrera as reported in the March 6, 1986 issue of the Manila Times entitled Aquino Trial Asham that the then-president has ordered the respondents in Digan Bayan and Tanod Bayan Bernardo Fernandez and the prosecution panel headed by Herrera to whitewash the criminal cases against the 26 respondents 
accused and produced a verdict of, ac- verdict of acquittal. On April 3, 1986, the court granted the motion to admit the second motion for reconsideration and ordered the respondents to comment thereon. Respondent Tanud Bayan Bernardo Fernandez stated in his manifestation filed on April 11, 1986 that he had ceased to hold office as Tanud Bayan as of April 8, 1986 when he was replaced by the new Tanud Bayan Raul M. Gonzalez but reiterating his position in his comment on the petition, he added, Relative to the reported alleged revelations of Deputy Tanud Bayan Manuel Herrera, herein respondent never succumbed to any alleged attempts to influence his actuations in the premises, having instead successfully resisted perceived attempts to exert pressure to drop the case after preliminary investigation, and actually ordered the filing and prosecution of the two murder cases below against here in private party respondents. He candidly admitted, also in his memorandum, there is not much that need be said about the existence of pressure, that there were pressures can hardly be denied. In fact, it has never been denied. He submitted that even as he vehemently denies insinuations of any direct or indirect complicity or participation in any alleged attempt to supposedly whitewash the cases below, should this honorable court find sufficient cause to justify the reopening and retrial of the cases below, he would welcome such development so that any wrong that had been caused may be righted, and so that at the very least, the actuations of herein respondent in the premises may be reviewed and re-examined, confident as he is that the end will show that he had done nothing in the premises that violated his trust as stand by an ombudsman. Nutanod by an Eraol M. Gonzalez, in his comment of April 14, 1986, interposed no objection to the reopening of the trial of the cases as in fact he urged that the said cases be reopened in order the justice could take its course. Respondents Justices of the Sandigan Bayan First Division in their collective comment of April 9, 1986 stated that the trial of the criminal cases by them was valid and regular and decided on the basis of evidence presented and the law applicable but manifested that if it is true that the former Tanod Bayan and the deputy Tanod Bayan chief of the prosecution panel were pressured into suppressing vital evidence when which would probably alter the result of the trial answering respondents would not interpose any objection to the reopening of those cases if only to allow justice to take its course. Respondents and Digan Bayan, Justice Bienvenido C. Vera Cruz, in a separate comment, asserted that he passed no note to anyone. The note being banded about it about is not in his handwriting. He had nothing to do with the writing of the note or of any note of any kind intended for any lawyer of the defense or even of the prosecution requested for an investigation by this court to settle the note passing issue once and for all. Deputy Tanod Bayan Manuel Herrera, in his comment of April 14, 1986, affirmed the allegations in the second motion for reconsideration that he revealed that the Sandigan Bayan Justices and Tanod Bayan prosecutors were ordered by Marcos to whitewash the Aquino Galman murder case. He amplified his revelations as follows. Number one, ab inicio, a verdict of acquittal. Incidents during the preliminary investigation showed ominous signs 
the defeat of the criminal case on the death of ex-senator Benigno Aquino and Rolando Galman on August 21, 1983 was doomed to an ignominious end. Malacanang wanted dismissal to the extent that a prepared resolution was sent to the investigating panel composed of the undersigned fiscals Ernesto Bernabe and Leonardo Tamayo for signature. This, of course, was resisted by the panel and a resolution charging all the respondents as principals was forwarded to the Tanod Bayan on January 10, 1985. Number 2. Malacanang Conference Planned Scenario of Trial At 6 p.m. of said date, January 10, Mr. Ferdinand E. Marcos, the former president, summoned to Malacanang Justice Bernardo Fernandez, the Tanod Bayan, Sandigan Bayan, Justice Manuel Pamaran, the presiding justice, and and the members of the panel also present at the meeting were Justice Manuel Lazaro, the coordinator, and Mrs. Imelda R. Marcos, who left earlier, came back and left again. The former president had a copy of the panel's signed resolution, charging all accused as principals, evidently furnished him in advance and with prepared notes on the contents thereof. The former president started by vehemently maintaining that Galman Shatakino at the tarmac, albeit initially the undersigned argued against the theory, to remain silent was the more discreet posture when the former president became emotional. He was quite sick then. <coughs> During a good part of the conference, the former president talked about Aquino and the communist lambasting, the Agrava board, especially the legal panel, shifting to the military, he rumbled on such statements as it will be bloody. General Ramos, though close to me, is getting ambitious and poor. Johnny does not know what to do. Our understanding with General Ramos is that his stint is only temporary. But he is becoming ambitious. The boys were frantic when they heard that they will be charged in court and would be detained at city jail. From outright sentiment, uh, from outright dismissal, the sentiment veered towards a more pragmatic approach. The former president, more or less, conceded that for political and legal reasons, all the respondents should be charged in court, politically, as it will become evident that the government was serious in pursuing the case towards its logical conclusion and thereby ease public demonstrations. On the other hand, legally, it, perce- it was perceived that after not if they are acquitted, double jeopardy would inure. The former president ordered then that the resolution be revised by categorizing the participation of each respondent. It was <coughs> in the matter of custody of the accused pendente lite, the coordinator was ordered to get in touch with General Narciso Cabrera, General Vicente, Eduardo and Director Jolie Bugarin to put on record that they had no place in their respective institutions. The existence of PD number 1950 giving custody to commanding officers of members of AFP charged in court was never mentioned. It was decided that the presiding justice first division would personally handle the trial and assurance was made by him that it would be finished in four to six months pointing out that with the recent effectivity of the new rules on criminal procedure, the trial could be expedited. Towards the end of the two-hour meeting and after the script had been tacitly mapped out, the former president authored, Magmoro-moro na lang kayo.
The parting words of the former president were, Thank you for your cooperation. I know how to reciprocate. While still in the palace grounds, on the way out, the undersigned manifested his desire to the Tanad Bayan to resign from the panel, or even the office. This, as well as other moves to this effect, had always been refused, hoping that with sufficient evidence sincerely and sufficiently presented by the prosecution, all involved in the trial would be conscience-pricked and realize the futility and injustice of proceeding in accordance with the script the undersigned opted to say on. Herrera further added details on the implementation of the script, such as the holding of a make-believe raffle within 18 minutes of the filing of the information with the Sandigan Bayan at noon of 2019-1985, while there were no members of the media. The installation of TV monitors directly beaming to Malacanang, the installation of a war room occupied by the military, attempts to direct and stifle the witnesses for the prosecution. The suppression of the evidence that could be given by U.S. Air Force men about the scrambling of Ninoy's plane, the suppression of rebuttal witnesses, and the bias and partiality of the Sindigan Bayan, its cavalier disregard of his plea that it should not decide these cases on the merits without first making a final ruling on the motion for inhibition. And the presiding justice overkill with the declaration that the court finds all accused innocent of the crimes charged in the two information and accordingly the incurred neither criminal nor civil liability, adding that in the almost 20 years that the undersigned has been the prosecutor in the sala of the presiding justice, this is the only occasion where civil liability is pronounced in a decision of acquittal. He associated himself with the motion for reconsideration and likewise prayed that the proceedings in the Sandigan Bayan and its decision be declared null and void. New Solicitor General said Fray Ordonez, comment of April 25, 1986, submitted that a declaration of mistrial will depend on the veracity of the evidence supportive of petitioner's claim of suppression of evidence and collusion. He submitted that this would require reception of evidence by a court-appointed or designated commissioner or body of commissioners as was done in GR number 71316 for the Romana case, NGR number 61016 Morales case, NGR number 70054 Banco Filipino case, and that if petitioner's claim were substantiated, a reopening of the double murder case is proper to avoid a miscarriage of justice since the verdict of acquittal would no longer be a valid basis for a double jeopardy claim. Respondents accused opposed the second motion for reconsideration and prayed for its denial. Respondent Olivas contended that the proper step for the government was to file a direct action to annul the judgment of acquittal and at a regular trial present its evidence of collusion and pressures. The other respondents raised the issue of double jeopardy and invoked that the issues had become moot and academic because of the rendition of the Sandigan Bayan's judgment of acquittal of all respondents accused on December 2, 1985 with counsels for respondents Bear and Tigas as well as Olivas further arguing that assuming that the judgment of acquittal is void for any reason. The remedy is a direct action to annul the judgment where the burden of proof falls upon the plaintiff to establish by clear, competent, and convincing evidence the cause of the nullity. After petitioners had filed their consolidated reply, 
The court resolved per its resolution of June 5, 1986 to appoint a three-member commission composed of retired Supreme Court Justice Conrado Vasquez, chairman, and retired Intermediate Appellate Court Justices Milagros, German, and Eduardo Cagioa as members to hear and receive evidence, testimonial, and documentary of the charges of collusion and pressures and relevant matters upon prior notice to all parties and to submit their findings to this court for proper disposition. The Commission conducted hearings on 19 days starting on June 16, 1986 and ending on July 16, 1986. On the said last day, respondents announced in open hearing they decided to forego the taking of the projected deposition of former President Marcos as his testimony would be merely corroborative of the testimonies of respondents Justice Pomeran and Tanod Bayan Fernandez. On July 31, 1986, it submitted its extensive 64-page report wherein it discussed fully the evidence received it and made a recapitulation of its findings in capsulized form as follows. Number 1. The Office of the Tanod Bayan, particularly Justice Fernandez, and the Special Investigating Panel composed of Justice Herrera, Fiscal Bernabe, and Special Prosecutor Tamayo, was originally of the view that all of the 26 respondents named in the, the Agravo Board of Majority Report should all be charged as principals of the crime of double murder for the death of Senator Benigno Aquino and Rolando Galman. Number 2, Malacanang Conference Planned Scenario of Trial at 6 p.m. of said date. Oh, wait. I'm not on number 2 anymore. Not this one, but this one. Number 2, when Malacanang learned of the impending filing of the said charge before the Sindigan Bayan, the Special Investigating Panel, having already prepared a draft resolution recommending such course of action, President Marcos Summon Justice Fernandez, the three members of the Special Investigating Panel, and Justice Pamaran to a conference in Malacanang in the early evening of January 10, 1985. In said conference, President Marcos initially expressed his disagreement with the recommendation of the Special Investigating Panel and dispute the findings of the Agrava Board that it was not Kalman who shot Benigno Aquino. Number four, later in the conference, however, President Marcos was convinced of the advisability of filing the murder charge in court so that after being acquitted this plan, the accused may no longer be prosecuted in view of the doctrine of double jeopardy. Number five, presumably in order to be assured that not all of the accused would be denied bail during the trial, considering that they would be charged with capital offenses, President Marcos directed that the several accused be categorized so that some of them would merely be charged as accomplices and accessories. Number six, in addition to said directive, President Marcos ordered that the case be handled personally by Justice Pamaran, who should dispose of it in the earliest possible time. Number seven, the instructions given in the Malacanang conference were followed to the letter. Compliance there would manifest itself in several specific instances in the court of the proceedings, such as the changing of the resolution of the special investigating panel. The filing of the case with the Sindigan Bayan and its assignment to Justice Pamaran, suppression of some vital evidence, harassment of witnesses, recantation of witnesses who gave adverse testimony before the Agrava Board, coaching of defense counsels, the hasty trial, monitoring of proceedings, and even in the very decision rendered in the case. Number eight, that the expression of President Marcus desire 
as to how he wanted the Aquino Galman case to be handled and disposed of constituted sufficient pressure on those involved in said task to comply with the same in the subsequent course of the proceedings. Number nine, that while Justice Pamaran and Justice Fernandez manifested no revulsion against complying with the Malacanang Directive, Justice Herrera played his role with manifestly ambivalent feelings. Number 10, sufficient evidence has been ventilated to show a scripted and predetermined manner of handling and disposing of the Aquino Galman murder case as stage ma- managed from Malacanang and performed by William Dramatis personally, as well as by recalcitrant once swept into line by the omnipresent influence of an authoritarian leader. The Commission submitted the following recommendation. Considering the existence of adequate credible evidence showing that the prosecution in the Aquino Galman case and the justices who tried and decided the same acted under the compulsion of some pressure, which proved to be beyond their capacity to resist and which not only prevented the prosecution to fully ventilate its position and to offer all the evidences which it could have otherwise presented but also predetermined the final outcome of the case, the Commission is of the considered thinking and belief subject to the better opinion and judgment of this Honorable Court that the proceedings in the said case have been vitiated by lack of due process and hereby respectfully recommends that the prayer in the petition for a declaration of a mistrial in Sandigan Bayan cases number 10010 and 10011 entitled People vs. Luther Custodia et al. be granted. The court Per its resolution of July 31, 1986, furnish all the parties with copies of the report and require them to submit their objections thereto. It thereafter heard the parties and their objections at the hearing of August 26, 1986, and the matter was submitted for the court's resolution. The court adopts and approves the report and its findings and holds on the basis thereof and of the evidence received and appreciated by the Commission and duly supported by the facts of public record and knowledge set forth above and herein after that the then-president codename Olympus had stage-managed in and from the Malacanang Palace a scripted and predetermined manner of handling and disposing of the Aquino Galman murder case and that the prosecution in the Aquino Galman case and the justices who tried and decided the same acted upon the compulsion of some pressure which proved to be beyond their capacity to resist and which not only prevented the prosecution to fully ventilate its position and to offer all the evidences which it could have otherwise presented but also predetermined the final outcome of the case of total absolution of the 26 respondents accused of all criminal and civil liability. The court finds that the Commission's report incorporated herein by reference and findings and conclusions are duly substantiated by the evidence and facts of public record, composed of distinguished members of proven integrity with a combined total of 141 years of experience in the practice of law, 55 years and in the prosecutorial and judicial services, 86 years in the trial and appellate court, experts at sifting the chaff from the green, the Commission properly appraised evidences presented and denials made by public respondents to us. The desire of President Marcus to have the Aquino Galman case disposed of in a manner suitable to his purposes was quite understandable and was not to be expected and was but to, to be expected. The case had stirred unprecedented public outcry and wide in, 
international attention, not invariably the finger of suspicion pointed to those then in power who supposedly had the means and the most compelling motive to eliminate Senator Aquino a day or so after the assassination President Marcos came up. The public statement aired over television that Senator Aquino was killed not by his military escorts but by a communist hired gun. It was therefore not a source of wonder that President Marcos would want the case disposed of in a manner consistent with his announced theory thereof. At the same time, would clear his name and his administration of any suspected guilty participation in the assassination. The calling of the conference was undoubtedly to accomplish this purpose. President Marcos made no bones to conceal his purpose for calling them. From the start, he expressed irritation and displeasure at the recommendation of the investigating panel to charge all of the 26 respondents as principals of the crime of double murder. He insisted that it was Galman who shot Senator Aquino and that the findings of the Agrava board were not supported by evidence that could stand in court. He discussed and argued with Justice Herrera on this point midway in the course of the discussion mention was made that the filing of the charge in court was would at least mollify public demands and possibly prevent further street demonstrations. It was further pointed out that such a procedure would be a better arrangement because if the accused are charged in court and subsequently acquitted, they may claim the benefit of the doctrine of double jeopardy and thereby avoid another prosecution if some other witnesses shall appear when President Marcos is no longer in office. After an agreement was reached as to filing the case instead of dismissing it, but with some of the accused to be charged merely as accomplices or accessories and the question of preventive custody of the accused having hereby received satisfactory solution, President Marcos took up the matter of who would try the case and how long it would take to be finished. According to Justice Herrera, President Marcos told Justice Pamaran point blank to personally handle the case. This was denied by Justice Pamaran. No similar denial was voiced by Justice Fernandez in the entire course of his two-day testimony. Justice Pamaran explained that such order could not have been given in as much as it was not yet certain then that the Sindigan Bayan would try the case. And besides, cases therein are assigned by raffle to a division and not to a particular justice thereof. It was preposterous to expect Justice Pomeran to admit having received such presidential directive. His denial, however, falls to pieces in the light of the fact that the case was indeed handled by him after being assigned to the division headed by him. A supposition of mere coincidence is at once dispelled by the circumstances that he was the only one for the Sandigan Bayan Code to the Malacanang Conference wherein the said directive was given. The giving of such a directive to Justice Pomeran may also be inferred from his admission that he gave President Marcos the possible time frame when asked as to how long it would take him to finish the case. The testimony of Justice Herrera that during the conference and after an agreement was reached on the filing of the case and subsequently acquitting the accused, President Marcos told them, Okay, magmoto-moto na lamang kayo. And that on their way out of the room, President Marcos expressed his thanks to the group and uttered, I know how to reciprocate. Did not receive any denial or contradiction either on the part of Justice Fernandez or Justice Pamaran. No other person present in the conference was presented by the respondents. Despite an earlier manifestation by the respondents of their intention to present Fiscal Bernabe and Prosecutor Tamayo, such move was abandoned without any reason having been given therefore. The facts set forth above are all supported with evidence and record. In the mind of the Commission, the only conclusion that may be drawn therefrom is that pressure from Malacanian had indeed been made to bear on both the court and the prosecution in the handling and disposition of the Aquino Galman case. The intensity of this pressure is readily deductible from the personality of the one who 
exerted it, his moral and official ascendancy over those to whom his instructions were directed. The motivation behind such instructions and the nature of the government prevailing at that time, which enabled the then head of state to exercise authoritarian power. That the conference called to script or stage manage the prosecution and trial of the Aquino Galman case was considered as something anomalous that should be kept away from the public eye is shown by the effort to assure its secrecy. None but those directly involved were caned to attend. The meeting was held in an inner room of the palace. Only the first lady and presidential legal assistant, Justice Lazaro, were with the president. The conferees were told to take the back door. In going to the room where the meeting was held, presumably to escape notice by the visitor in the reception hall waiting to see the president. Actually, no public mention, alas, ever made of this conference until Justice Herrera made his expose some 15 months later when the former president was no longer around. President Marcos undoubtedly realized the importance of the matter he wanted to take up with the officials he asked to be summoned. He had to do it personally, and not merely through trusted assistance, the lack of will or determination on the part of Justice Fernandez and Justice Pamaran to resist the presidential summons, despite their realization of its unwholesome implication on their handling of the celebrated murder case, may be easily inferred from their unquestioned obedience. There, too, no effort to resist was made, despite the existence of a most valid reason to beg off on the lame excuses that they went there out of curiosity or out of respect to the office of the president or that it would be unbecoming to refuse a summons from the president. Such frame of mind only reveals their susceptibility to presidential pressure and lack of capacity to resist the same. The very acts of being summoned to Malacanang and their ready acquiescence thereto under the circumstances then obtaining are in themselves pressure dramatized and exemplified their object deference to President Marcos may likewise be inferred from the admitted fact that not having been given seats during the two-hour conference Justice Fernandez said it was not that long but did not say how long in which the president Marcos did the talking most of the time they listened to him on their feet verily it can be said that any avowal of independent action or resistance to presidential pressure became illusory from the very moment they stepped inside Malacanang Palace on January 10, 1985 <coughs> the commission pinpointed the crucial factual issue thus the more significant inquiry is on whether the Sandigan Bayan and the office of the Tanod Bayan actually succumbed to such pressure as may be gauged by their subsequent actuations in their respective handling of the case. It duly concluded that the pressure exerted by President Marcos in the conference held on January 10, 1985 pervaded the entire proceedings of the Aquino Gallman murder cases as manifested in several specific incidents and instances it enumerated in the report under the heading of manifestations of pressure and manipulation. Suffice it to give here and below brief excerpts. Number one, the changing of the original Herrera panel draft resolution charging all the 26 accused as principals by the conspiracy by categorizing and charging 17 as principals, 
Generals Ver and Olivas and six others as accessories and a civilian as accomplice and recommending bail for the latter two categories, the categorization may not be completely justified by saying that in the mind of Justice Fernandez, there was no sufficient evidence to justify that all of the accused be charged as principals. The majority of the Agravo board found the existence of conspiracy and recommended that all of the accused be charged accordingly. Without going into the merit of such finding, it may hardly be disputed that in case of doubt and in accordance with the standard practice of the prosecution to charge accused with the most serious possible offense or in the highest category as so as to prevent an incurable justice in the event that the evidence presented in the trial will show his guilt of the graver charge. The most logical and practical course of action should have been, as originally recommended by the Herrera panel, to charge all the accused as principals. As it turned out, Justice Fernandez readily opted for categorization, which not surprisingly was in consonance with the Malacanang instruction. It is too much to attribute to coincidence that such unusual categorization came only after that then. President's instruction at the Malacanang when General vs. Counsel, Attorney Coronel, had been asking the same of Daniel Bayan Fernandez since November 1984 and Justice Fernandez himself admitted that as of that time, the Malacanang Conference on January 10, 1985, his own view was in conformity with that of the Special Investigation Panel to charge all of the 26 respondents as principals for the crime of double murder. As the Commission further noted, Justice Fernandez never denied the claim of Justice Herrera that the draft resolution of January 10, 1985, Exhibit B1, charging all 26 accused as principals was to have been the subject of a press conference on the afternoon of said date which did not go through due to the summons for them to go to Malacanang in the early evening of said date. So, number two, suppression of vital evidence and harassment of witnesses. Realizing no doubt that the party's case is as strong as the evidence it can present, unmistakable and persistent efforts were exerted in behalf of the accused to weaken the case of the prosecution and thereby assure and justify the accused's eventual descripted acquittal and favored unfavorable evidences were sought to be suppressed and some were indeed prevented from being ventilated. Adverse witnesses were harassed, cajoled, perjured, perjured or threatened either to refrain from testifying or to testify in a manner favorable to the defense. The report specified the ordeals of the prosecution witnesses Cesar Loterina, Pal employee, Roberta Masibay, Galman's stepdaughter, who recanted their testimonies before the fact-finding board and had to be discarded as prosecution witnesses before at the trial, witnesses Viesca and Ranias, who also testified before the board, disappeared all of a sudden and could not be located by the police. The commission narrated the efforts to stifle Ranias, uh, to stifle Kiyoshi Wakamiya, eyewitness, who accompanied Ninoy on his fateful flight on August 21, 1983, and described them as palpable if crude and displaying sheer abuse of power. Wakamiya was not even allowed to return to Manila on August 20, 1984 to participate in the first death anniversary of Ninoy, but was deported as an undesirable alien and had to leave on the next plane to, for Tokyo. The board had to go to Tokyo to hear Wakamiya give his testimony before the Japanese police in accordance with their law, and Wakamiya claimed before the commission that the English transcription of his testimony as prepared by an official of the Philippine Embassy in Tokyo was inaccurate and did not correctly reflect the testimony he gave, although there was no clear showing of the discrepancy from the original transcription which was in Nipongo. 
Upon his arrival at the MIA on August 21, 1985, on the invitation of Justice Herrera to testify at the ongoing trial, a shot was fired and a soldier was seen running away by media man who sought to protect Makamiya from harm by surrounding him. Makamiya was enforced by immigration officials to leave the country by Saturday, August 24th, notwithstanding Herrera's request to let him stay until he could testify the following Monday. August 26, in the case of Principal I.J. Witness Rebecca Quijano, the Commission reported that, Undoubtedly, in view of the considerable significance of our proposed testimony and its unfavorable effect on the cause of the defense, the efforts exerted to suppress the same was as much as, if not more than those in the case of Wakamiya. She recounted that she was in constant fear of her life, having been haunted by armed men. That their house in Tabaco Albay was ransacked, her family harassed by the foreclosure of the mortgage on their house by the local rural bank and ejected therefrom when she ignored the request of its manager to talk with her about her proposed testimony. That a certain William Farinas offered her plane tickets for a trip abroad. That Mayor Rudy Farinas of Lawag City kept on calling her sister in the United States to warn her not to testify. That later, Rudy and William Farinas offered her 2 million pesos supposedly coming from Bongbong Marcos, a house and a lot in Baguio. The drafting of her staff a case in Hong Kong and the punishment of the persons responsible for the death of her father if she would refrain from testifying. It is a matter of record, however, that despite such casualty and harassments or perhaps because of them, Mrs. Quijano eventually testified before the Sandigan Bayan. Justice Herrera was told by Justice Fernandez of the displeasure expressed by Olympus at Justice Herrera's going out of his way to make Ms. Quijano to testify and for his refusal to honor the invitation to attend the birthday party of the First Lady on May 1, 1985 and on the eve of Ms. Quijano's testimony on May 2, 1985. The insidious attempts to tamper with her testimony, however, did not end with her taking the witness stand. In the course of her testimony, several notes were passed by, were passed to Attorney Rodolfo Jimenez, the defense counsel who cross-examined her, one of which suggested that she be asked more questions about Dina Vasa, who was suspected of having coached her as to what to declare Exhibit D. And on another occasion, at a crucial point in her testimony, a power brownout occurred, which lasted for about 20 minutes, throwing the courtroom into darkness and making most of those present to scamper for safety and Miss Keanu to pass over the railing of the rostrum so as to be able to leave the courtroom. It was verified that the brownout was limited to the building housing the Sandigan Bayan, yet not having affected the nearby Manila City Hall and the finance building. Justice Herrera declared that the main switchboard of the Sandigan Bayan electrical system was located beside the room occupied by the Malacanang people who were keeping track of the proceedings. Attorney Lupino Lazaro for petitioners further made of record at the August 26th hearing that the two Oliva sisters, Anna and Catherine Hospitality Girls, disappeared on September 4, 1984, two weeks after Ninoy's assassination. And the informant by the name of Evelyn, also a hospitality girl who jotted down the number of the car that took them away, also disappeared. On January 29, 1984, during the proceedings of the board, Lina Galman, the common law wife of Rolando Galman, was kidnapped. Together with a neighbor named Rogelio Taruk, they have been missing since then. Despite his attempts to find any of them, according to him, nobody was looking for these five persons because they said Marcos was in power. 
despite his appeal to the Minister of National Defense to locate them. Today, still, no one is looking for these people, and he appealed to the new leadership for its assistance in learning their faith. Number three, the discarding of the affidavits executed by U.S. airmen. While it is true that the U.S. airmen's proposed testimonies would show an attempt of the Philippine Air Force to divert the plane to Basa Airfield or some other place, such showing would not necessarily contravene the theory of the prosecution nor the actual fact that Senator Aquino was killed at the Manila International Airport. Justice Herrera had accurately pointed out that such attempt of scrambling a Tino's plane merely showed a wider range of conspiracy, it being possibly just one of two or three other plans designed to accomplish the same purpose of liquidating Senator Aquino. In any event, even assuming that the said piece of evidence could go either way, it may not be successfully contended that it was prudent or wise on the part of the prosecution to totally discard the said piece of evidence. Despite minor inconsistencies contained therein, its introduction could have helped the cause of the prosecution. If it were not so, or that it would even favor the defense as averred by Justice Fernandez, the determined effort to suppress the same would have been totally uncalled for. Number four, nine proposed rebuttal witnesses not presented. Number five, the failure to exhaust available remedies against adverse developments. When the Supreme Court denied the petition of Justice Fernandez against the exclusion of the testimonies given by the military respondent heading to General Burr before the fact-finding board, the latter almost immediately announced to media that he was not filing a motion for reconsideration of said denial for the reason that it would be futile to do so and full-heartedly to expect a finishing uh, a favorable action on the scene. His posture is in the least indicative that he was living up to the instruction of finishing the trial of the case as soon as possible, if not something else. Number six, the assignment of the case to presiding Justice Pamaran. Justice Herrera testified that President Marcos ordered Justice Pamaran point blank to handle the case. The pro forma denial by Justice Pamaran of such instructions crumbles under the actuality of such directive having been complied with to the letter. Justice Pamaran sought to discredit the claim that he was ordered by President Marcos to handle the case personally by claiming that cases in the Sindigan Bayan are assigned by Raffle and not to a particular justice but to a division thereof. The evidence before the Commission on how the case happened to be assigned to Justice Pamaran evinces a strong indication that such assignment was not done fairly or regularly. There was no evidence at all that the assignment was indeed by virtue of a regular raffle except uncorroborated testimony of Justice Pamaran. Despite in an announcement that Justice Escarial would be presented by the respondents to testify on the contents of his aforesaid memorandum, such was not done. No person was given why Justice Escarial could not or would not like to testify. Neither was any one of the officials or employees of the Sandigan Bayan who, according to Justice Pamaran, were present during the supposed raffle presented to corroborate the claim of justice. It is also an admitted fact that the two informations in the double murder case were filed by Justice Herrera 
on January 23, 1985 at 12.02 p.m. and the members of the raffle committee were summoned at 12.20 p.m. or only 18 minutes after the filing of the two informations. Such speed in the actual assignment of the case can truly be categorized as unusual if not extraordinary considering that before a case filed by may be included in the raffle there is need for a certain amount of paperwork to be undertaken if such preliminary requirements were done in this case within the limited time available there from the charges that the raffle was rushed to avoid the presence of media people would ring with truth Saturnina Galman versus Sandigan Bayan GR number 72670, September 12, 1986 Last August 21st, our nation marked with solemnity and for the first time in freedom, the third anniversary of the treacherous assassination of foremost opposition leader, former Senator Benigno Ninoy Aquino Jr. imprisoned for almost eight years since the imposition of martial law in September 1972 by then-President Ferdinand E. Marcos, he was sentenced to death by firing squad by a military tribunal for common offenses alleged to have been committed long before the declaration of martial law and whose jurisdiction over him as a civilian entitled to trial by juridical process by civil courts he repudiated. Ninoy pleaded in vain that the military tribunals are admittedly not courts but merely instruments and subject to the control of the president as created by him. Under the general orders issued by him as commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the Philippines and that he had already been publicly indicted and adjudged guilty by the president of the charges in a nationwide press conference held on August 24, 1971 when he declared the evidence against Ninoy not only strong, but overwhelming. This followed the Plaza Miranda bombing on August 21, 1971, of the proclamation rally of the opposition Liberal Party candidates for the November 1971 elections, when eight persons were killed and practically all of the opposition candidates headed by Senator Jovito Salonga and many more were seriously injured. And the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus under proclamation number 889 on august 23 1971 the massacre was instantly attributed to the communist but the truth has never been known but the then president never filed the said charges against ninoy in the civil courts ninoy aquino was nevertheless thereafter allowed in may 1980 to leave the country to undergo successful heart surgery after three years of exile and despite the regime's refusal to give him a passport he sought to return home to strive for a genuine national reconciliation founded on justice he was to be cold-bloodedly killed while under escort away by soldiers from his plane that had just landed at the manila international airport on that fateful day at past 1 p.m his brain was smashed by a bullet fired point-blank into the back of his head by a murderous assassin. Notwithstanding that the airport was ringed by airtight security of close to 2,000 soldiers, and from a military standpoint, it was technically impossible to get inside such a cordon. 
the military investigators reported within a span of three hours that the man who shot Aquino, whose identity was then supposed to be unknown and was revealed only days later as Orlando Galman, although he was the person friend of accused Colonel Arturo Custodio who picked him up from his house on August 17, 1983, was a communist-hired gunman and that the military escorted gunned him down in turn. The military later filmed a reenactment of the killing scripted according to this version and continuously replayed it on all TV channels as if it were taken live on the spot. The then-president instantly accepted the military version and repeated it in a nationally televised press conference that he gave late in the evening of August 22, 1983, wherein he said in order to induce disbelief that the military had a hand in the killing, that if the purpose was to eliminate Aquino, this was not the way to do it. The national tragedy shocked the conscience of the entire nation and outraged the free world. The large masses of people who joined in a 10-day period of national mourning and came out in millions in the largest and most orderly public turnout for Ninoy's funeral reflected their grief for his martyrdom and their yearning for the truth, justice, and freedom. The then-president was constrained to create a fact-binding board to investigate the treacherous and vicious assassination of former Senator Benigno S. Aquino, Aquino Jr. on August 21, 1983, which has to all Filipinos become a national tragedy and national shame especially because of the early distortions and exaggerations in both foreign and local media so that all right-thinking and honest men desire to ventilate the truth through fair, independent, and dispassionate investigation by prestigious and free investigators. After two false starts, he finally constituted the board on October 22, 1983, which held 125 hearing days commencing November 3, 1983, including three hearings in Tokyo and eight hearings in Los Angeles, California, and heard the testimonies of 194 witnesses, recorded in 20,377 pages of transcripts until the submission of their minority and majority reports to the president on October 23 and 24, 1984. This was to mark another first anywhere in the world wherein the minority report was submitted one day ahead by the ponente thereof, the chairman who was received conge- congenially and cordially by the then president who treated the report as if it were the majority report instead of a minority report of one and forthwith referred it to respondent Tanad Bayan for the final resolution through the legal system and for trial in the Sandigan Bayan, which was better known as a graph court. And the majority report of the four other members was submitted on the following day to the then-president who coldly received them and could scarcely conceal his instant rejection of their report with the grim statement that, I hope you can live with your conscience with what you have done. The fact is that both majority and minority reports were one in rejecting the military version as propounded by the Chief Investigator Respondent General Olivas, 
that Rolando Galman was the NPA-hired NPA assassin, stating that the evidence shows to the contrary that Rolando Galman had no subversive affiliations. They were in agreement that only the soldiers in the staircase with Senator Aquino could have shot him. That Galman, the military's fall guy, was not the assassin of Senator Aquino and that the SWAT troopers who gunned down Galman and the soldiers who escorted Senator Aquino down the service stairs deliberately and in conspiracy with one another gave a perjured story to us regarding the alleged shooting by Galman of Senator Aquino and the mowing down in turn of Galman himself. In short, the Ninoy's assassination was the product of a military conspiracy, not a communist plot. The only difference between the two reports is that the majority report found all the 26 private respondents above mentioning the title of the case headed by then AFP Chief General Fabian Siever involved in the military conspiracy and therefore indictable for the premeditated killing of Senator Benigno S. Aquino Jr. and Rolando Galman at the MIA on August 21, 1983, while the Chairman's minority report would exclude 19 of them and limit as plotters the six persons who were on the service stairs while Senator Aquino was descending and General Luther Custodio because the criminal plot could not have been planned and implemented without his intervention.